0: i invite you to turn now to 1st Timothy chapter 3. 1st Timothy chapter 3. We are working through this letter of Paul to Timothy. And um, we're getting into some technical stuff here in the end of chapter 2 and now into chapter 3. And maybe it doesn't feel like the most inspirational, but it is very important And I hope that as we get into this, the Lord speaks to our hearts as well and challenges us in some important ways. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want us to focus today on verses 1 through 13. 1 through 13. Begins, the saying is trustworthy. Trustworthy. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Lord, I thank you for these instructions, and I pray that you will help us apply them personally in our own lives as we think about our own uh, character, but also as a church as we think about the importance of um, qualifications for leadership. We thank you for guiding us and for watching over us. In Jesus' name, amen. The trail of wreckage, left behind by bad leaders in the Church, should scare us all. Failed leadership is like a spiritual hurricane. It impacts everyone. And for some, their faith might be completely wiped out, like those whose homes this past week have been... Cleaned off the map. But everyone in the path has some kind of mopping up to do because the the devastation, the destruction is real. Um, Last year I had to uh, do some driving, uh, transporting kids to school, and I found a podcast that I would listen to each day as I was driving to and from, and it was put out by Christianity Today, and it became quite popular. Many people have since listened to this. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And um, maybe you've heard of it. It tells the story of Mark Driscoll and the church that he started in Seattle in 1996. It went from just a handful of people in his basement to tens of thousands within 10 years or less. It was cutting edge. It was serious. It was in your face. It was hip. It was so big that they eventually rented out the Seattle Seahawks Stadium for their Easter Sunday service. And then within just a short time after that, the whole thing collapsed. So what is kind of unusual about this collapse at uh, Mars Hill Church is that it wasn't uh, a scandal involving immorality. It wasn't uh, primarily a problem with the money, although there were certainly some financial issues, but it was Mark Driscoll's hard-driving, autocratic, take-no-prisoners style of leadership. And he, as this thing kept getting bigger and bigger, he would pull in corporate leaders from the business world to run the church because they got the results that he wanted, and they didn't mind running people over in the process. And so it was ultimately an example of a leadership failure on many different levels. And what had made this this. Thing grow so big, so fast, is what also led to its rapid implosion. And the pattern has been sadly repeated multiple times in some high-profile situations since then, um, many not making the news the way Mars Hill did. But notice what Paul looks for in church leaders, What are the qualifications that the Bible lays out? They're not the kind of qualifications that the the world seeks, are they? The characteristics that Paul lists here aren't the one in a million types, but they're character questions. We hear it often that people complain about the high pay of corporate CEOs, um, so many people you know, do these comparisons. Well, how many of the employees uh, uh, does it take to equal how much money the one CEO is earning in this company? And yet, the more people complain, the more they seem to pay the CEOs. They're making millions and millions of dollars. Why is that? There's a reason. Corporate boards know that there aren't very many people capable of doing what they see needs to get done. And there's only a small pool of these types out there. And if you aren't willing to pay, you won't get one. And the the, the shareholders know that the the company's just not gonna go where it needs to go without this type of leadership. I mean, why does a football coach at Ohio State get uh, $9 million a year? Well, the football coach at UT might get about a million dollars a year. Maybe the score of 77 to 21 tells you something. But when you get into these highest levels of coaching skill, they've decided that the very best are worth paying whatever it takes. That's the world we live in. But is the church different from a corporation or a football team? And some now say no. That's why there are about a half a dozen pastors in the US today, now worth 50 million or more. But the Bible says there is a difference. In fact, there's a huge difference. First Timothy three is our evidence of this. Here we have some qualifications for leadership and none of them are the sorts of things that would set somebody apart to to, uh, deserve tens of millions of dollars or, or whatever. It's not about that. It's about character. It's about calling. And and these lists of characteristics are are broken into two groups. There's overseers in verses 1 through 7, and then deacons in verses 8 through 13. The word for overseer is sometimes translated as bishop. It's also synonymous in the Bible with the term elder. The word deacon literally means servant. servant. Very different perspective on leadership, isn't it? In the traditional structure of the Free Methodist Church, pastors are considered elders, and deacons are usually appointed at a local level. So here at Highland Free Methodist, I am considered an elder, and we have seven deacons here in the local church. We also have other uh, levels of leadership. We have a pastor's cabinet who function in some ways as, as elders might in other churches. Uh, we have a board of administration and we have a ministry team that help keep us focused on our vision on our purpose and, and, and fulfilling the, the ministry obligations and commitments that we have for the vision. The Bible doesn't provide a detailed outline or structure for how a church needs to be set up, but it does give clear qualifications for the leaders that are in those positions. And these qualifications are primarily about character. They're about character. Um, we're going to look at that in, in a moment here, but I just want to start with verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I want to make that clear. Um, for a couple of reasons here. There's a need for good leaders in the church. There is a need for good pastors in churches. And in the circles that I'm in, I'm seeing this more and more, the, 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 the need for God to raise up new leaders to lead churches. And Paul says, if you aspire to this, it is a noble task Maybe not necessarily uh, one in which you're going to uh, earn as much as you might in the secular uh, field or maybe get the same kind of um, attention you, you could elsewhere, but it is noble because it is a calling and it is blessed to serve. And I just pray earnestly that God is going to be raising up new overseers, new elders, new pastors, new leaders from among us to lead the church in the next generation. It is a noble task. And with that, then there are these qualifications. And I went through these two lists, you know, there's two of them there. And, and, and some of these are similar, a lot of them overlap, but some have some kind of distinct things or features. But what I did was I took all the, the lists of qualifications here and I put them into one. Because I, I don't want to repeat some of these, but in combining the two lists, I've come up with 13 characteristics for uh, qualifications for leaders. So here we go a 13 point sermon. You ready? And as we go through this, think of this obviously in, in, in relation to the qualifications that God expects of leaders in the church, but think of them as character qualities that are good for all of us, whether we are in leadership or not. These are virtues that God wants to instill in us and help us to grow in, and our lives are better as we live out these, these qualities. So there's truth here for all of us, leaders or not, but especially for leaders and especially for those who hold leaders accountable as as you hold me accountable, and as I hold other leaders accountable, I want these to be our standards. I just want to say it right up front if 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 you see me out of line in some area here, address it please i I don't want this um, I, I, I I want there to be that that freedom, that openness to hold accountable and uh, for all of our leaders here in the church. But number one in this list, above reproach. A leader must be above reproach. And I'm combining with this also the quality of being respectable and also where it says in verse 7, they must be well thought of by outsiders so that they may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Also where it speaks of deacons being dignified. Um, these I think all come under this heading of above reproach. In some ways, to be above reproach is is the, the heading of the whole list, the whole chapter. But a leader is in the church must have a good reputation inside and outside the church. And this qualification is, as I said, an accumulation of the other qualifications. What is this person's reputation among their neighbors? What is this reputation within their family? If a leader is a lay leader, and when I use that term lay leader, I mean somebody who's not an ordained clergy. But if they're a lay leader within the church, what is their reputation among their coworkers, among their business associates? Uh, would their coworkers or their competitors even in business be surprised to learn that they're a leader in their church based on the behavior they've seen? And this also raises another important question as we start to get into this list, and that is the question about leaders who have fallen, leaders who have sinned. Can they be restored? What if they are no longer above reproach among uh, those who know them? Can they be restored to leadership or are they permanently disqualified? Well, a lot will depend on the nature of the sin, the path of reconciliation that was followed and the position be that they're being considered for. It'd be impossible to give a simple answer, but a standard must be maintained and I'm probably on the tougher end of this spectrum than some, but I always assure you grace offers forgiveness, but I don't believe that grace necessarily allows for full restoration to any position of leadership. And on this basis, because there are certain sins that will disqualify a person from certain ministries uh, and and perhaps for a lifetime because of the effects it has had on their reputation or their example in the community. Um, God has a place for each of us to serve. And God has restored in many ways, in miraculous ways, people in leadership. And certainly Paul himself was once a persecutor of the church and then becomes an apostle of Christ. But we take into account was that person, Paul himself was not yet a leader in the church at that time. His conversion came after his fall. So there are various factors that we have to keep in mind when we think about restoring fallen leaders. And it's not a simple one-size-fits-all answer, but I believe we should be very particular and careful about such things. Because often there is damage through reputations, especially in the community. Um, Second, so above reproach, next, the husband of one wife. It says of deacons, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So this qualification applies to both. The key here is not that a leader must be married, but that they must be married to only one person, that they must live monogamously. And in today's world, we must also point out that it says the husband must be must have a wife, not another husband. So there's a definition of what the family is to look like here in these qualifications. Third, they are to be sober-minded. Um, also, I would include with that self-controlled. Self-controlled is also in this list. So sober-minded, self-controlled. Later on in this list, we're going to address the matter of alcohol in particular. But here the focus is on the sobriety of the mind. And some translate this as temperate. It's a quality of moderation, of self-restraint. And so the question is, does this person overindulge in pleasures? Are they gluttonous? Can they say no to temptation? Or are they driven by impulse and reaction? Is there a spiritual maturity here that allows them to to be sober-minded, self-controlled, temperate? Number four hospitable hospitable Uh, the literal translation here is do they love strangers are they loving to strangers will they welcome people into their circles into their homes into their communities and you know i think this is a good one for all of us to be challenged with because we live in a culture that is becoming less and less hospitality oriented uh, a lot of people just seem shocked now if somebody shows up at their house unexpectedly. Um, to be hospitable doesn't mean you have to have the, your home in perfect order and ready to 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 entertain guests, but it, it means just being willing to open your door when somebody's there to welcome them in, to extend that openness to a visitor or to somebody in need. I think it's kind of an irony of our day today that we perhaps spend more money and time than ever fixing up our homes while having fewer and fewer people ever come enjoy all that we've done to those homes. So hospitality is a key quality of good leadership. Fifth, Speaking of overseers or elders, Paul says they need to be able to teach, able to teach. Now, this is not a quality uh, or qualification listed for deacons, although I find it interesting that Stephen, one of the very first deacons, also gives the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So deacons certainly can preach, but it's a qualification specific here for overseers and elders. Uh, Some churches have what they call ruling elders and teaching elders, and the pastor is considered a teaching elder. But what is important here is not just that they have a, a degree in education, understand good pedagogy and things like that, but that they're able to teach the word of God, that they understand the scriptures, that they can rightly divide the word of truth and that they can proclaim it with authority and boldness, recognizing it as the word of God. So, Paul spends a lot of time in 2 Timothy instructing him on the specifics of teaching the Word of God. It's about taking the ancient words of Scripture and applying them to the contemporary realities of our day. Able to teach. Number six on my list not a drunkard, or as the deacons are told, not addicted to much wine. Alcohol wrecks lives, it wrecks families, and it can also wreck churches. The qualifications here is in regards to drunkenness, but my challenge to everyone is to consider the, the high road of not drinking as a witness to the fulfillment that we have in Christ. The short-lived pleasure alcohol might bring to some pales in comparison to the terrible consequences it so easily produces. The effects of alcohol on an individual are unpredictable. We don't know who will be controlled by it until they try it. So the best route is to never start because no one ever had their first drink with the intention of becoming a drunk. And yet once they get there, it completely enslaves them. And I think I probably have maybe a unique perspective on this because I have worked with so many individuals who are enslaved by this and who desperately want to be free and who struggle their entire lives with this battle. So not a drunkard, not addicted to much wine. Number seven in my list, not violent, but gentle. Not violent, but gentle. Also, where it says not quarrelsome. And I'm sure there's a connection here to the drunkenness because so often that can lead to violence and quarrels of different kinds. We, we don't resolve conflict with violence. We're called to follow the way of Jesus. Number eight, Not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Or not greedy for dishonest gain. When Jesus said that no man can serve two masters, he was talking about that tension between God and money. You can only live for one or the other because they each will pull at your heart. So how much money is enough? Well, it's always just a little more than what you have, isn't it? And the key to contentment is not getting that little bit more, but in finding satisfaction with less. And so often, our world fails to to convince us of this because we live in a society, we live in a culture, we live in an economy that just uh, drills into us. Consume, 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 buy, buy, buy. It's all about money. And sure, we're supposed to be good stewards with what the Lord provides, but the power of money over our hearts is strong. And the only antidote to that is generosity and to give. So not a lover of money. Number nine, he must manage his own household well, or also with all dignity, keep his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church. So the argument here moves from the family to the church. If a leader can't not lead his household, we shouldn't be surprised if he fails in leading a church. And I don't think this means that our children must be perfect, or even that they have to be first in the Sunday school class. But it does mean that a a church leader needs to be devoted to the spiritual health and growth of their home. And that that needs to be a priority, not to the neglect of, 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 the, uh, of the, that they cannot feed the church in the neglect of their home. It's that whole starving baker syndrome. Uh, there cannot be a double standard. We cannot act one way in church or in the pulpit or in public and another way behind the closed doors at home. Number 10, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Also, it says of deacons, let them first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So this takes time. There needs to be some testing, there needs to be some examination. We uh, run a great risk when we push someone too quickly into roles of responsibility. And I think that's a popular idea right now, and I'm concerned by it, uh, that, that there's this thrust to just put people into positions of leadership and authority who aren't necessarily prepared. Maybe thinking, well, the less experience they have, uh, the better because they won't be afraid. Uh, but that's a recipe for disaster. We need to encourage new believers to grow. We need to provide them with opportunities to learn and to serve and to eventually lead and to teach. But that takes patience. It takes a lot of effort. And that requires a time of testing because of the, the, the warning here is clear. Uh, conceit and pride come quickly with leadership. And it's easy to fall into the condemnation of the devil. So this warning needs to be taken to heart. Number 11, not double-tongued, not double-tongued. And these last two are going to be specifically mentioned in the deacon list, not in the elder list, but I'm sure that they would apply equally to both. This means being sincere. It means not saying one thing to one person and something else to another, but it's being consistent, shooting straight, not being overly cagey or overly circumspect, but um, being held clearly to a standard of truth and clarity. And then holding to the mystery, number 12, of faith with a clear conscience. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What we say must line up with what we believe. Without sincerity, running all the way down through a leader, we will eventually fail and fall. And the wind will eventually blow down the tree, and the rotten core inside will be revealed. So it's important that we are sincere, not double-tongued, that we speak and teach with a clear conscience." So that's a long list. If you go and buy a used car, and you talk to the dealer, sometimes they'll, they'll say, this car went through a 70-some point inspection to make sure everything's in working order. And I guess you hope they're telling you the truth, because you can't necessarily run that inspection yourself. But when we think about leaders for a church, it's important to also consider, are they qualified? Have they been inspected? Do we know what we're getting into and in placing them in a position? of authority in about six weeks. We're going to have our annual society meeting here uh, at the church. We're going to select leaders for 2023 and the nominating committees uh, soon to prepare the ballot for this as we consider who to vote on and who to put into some of these positions in the board of administration or the pastor's cabinet. And we need to consider the qualifications carefully that are spelled out for leaders in the church. And as I said already, maybe you're not a, a, a leader in that sense, but um, you are still called to to this character, to these qualities. And God encourages and blesses us all as we we grow. Are we we being respectable? Are we being sober-minded? Are we growing in gentleness? Are we free from the love of money? These are all questions that we can all ask and grow in godliness as a result. But I I, I don't want to, in going through this list, um, simply scare people away from leadership. I want to inspire you and to know that, as Paul said there in verse 1, you desire a noble task as you aspire to lead in the church. In the mid-17th century in England, there was uh, a lot of religious conflict in that country, and Charles I was beheaded uh, by um, those with Oliver Cromwell, who came to power, and there was such shifting in politics and authority, and this infected, affected the church in, in numerous ways. It was a very dangerous time for leaders and to be in ministry. And the Anglican church leaders who were associated with King Charles came under special attack. They were often defamed and stripped of their positions, and many leaders in the Church of England saw their life's work unravel before them. But in the midst of all of this, uh, some remained faithful and steadfast, and there's an inscription that was found hidden away inside of a church the Herald Church of Staunton, England, had this inscription uh, etched into one of its walls. It says, in the year 1653, when all things sacred were throughout the nation destroyed or profaned, this church was built to the glory of God by Sir Robert Shirley, whose singular praise it was to have done the best things in the worst times to have done the best things in the worst times. It's certainly easy to complain about the times in which we live, and yet what matters most is what we do in the times that we've been given. And working together in the power of the Holy Spirit, the church has unprecedented possibilities for making a difference in our world, and that takes leadership And it takes the kind of leadership that has the qualities of character and virtue above all else. And those who aspire to be leaders desire a noble task. May God call and equip us to that for these times. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would help us hold each other accountable. Help us spur one another on. Help us to see the blessing of living uh, in, in, in conformity with the qualifications, the qualities laid out here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Guide us as a church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.